Lord Jesus, uh, you were put to public humiliation on our behalf. We, uh, we take a moment and remember that the cross is real, that the public display was real, the triumph was real, and all of it was done for us. We come to you this morning as um, your disciples, saved by grace, relying on grace, uh, desiring to be taught, submitting ourselves humbly to you. We pray that you would teach us, that you would make our hearts good soil this morning. Not so we could be some kind of trophy, but because we want you to receive um, all of the honor and glory, exaltation that is due to you for taking this road of humiliation for us, for laying down your power. We would see your name now exalted as you've received the name above every name. We love you. We pray in your powerful name. Amen. I am so glad to be with you. It's so good to see you. Um, I know you don't want this recognition, Hannah, but we're so grateful to see you and to have you with us this morning. And um, <laughs> I'm so sorry to do that with you. I'd only, I only do that for Jesus' sake, just to honor his name and God for um, just protecting you and bringing health uh, back to your body well enough to be here today. And Mark and Kay, uh, we're with you. We love you. So glad to see you. So, um, hey, um, find Luke 20 in your Bible if you've got one with you. Um, we have uh, made a start at this passage in Luke 20, verses 1 through 19. Uh, We only made a start at it last Sunday, and we only covered one verse. So we've got, like, the whole rest of it to go today. Luke 20, verses 1 through 19. We uh, are learning about the kingdom of God from the Gospel of Luke. And this is the climactic conversation in the Gospel of Luke. This is the major clash that decides everything. This clash between... Jesus and the religious leaders that we've been watching build over the course of the gospel as they've had interactions and they've been really tense. There's been um, words exchanged back and forth. There's been argumentation back and forth. There's been rebuke. There's been um, harsh words. There's been accusations. Palm Sunday has happened. And now there's fallout from Palm Sunday. And so this is the passage where they're attempting dialogue to like work this out in terms of the exchange of words. So dialogue is going to be attempted here, but we know the end of the story that violence is going to be resorted to. And we're going to look today at the dynamics that were at play in this climactic conversation to try to understand the dynamics that led to Jesus' death. And not only that, not only to try to understand the dynamics that ended up leading to Jesus' death, but to try to figure out, is there any way those same dynamics could actually still be with us today? And um, we'll have some important things to say in terms of application, um, because we also are tempted to sacrifice Jesus in order to maintain our own power. And that's the dynamic that we're going to observe today. So let's read the text, verses 1 through 19. And um, then we'll get into it, okay? If you're able to stand uh, one more time in honor of God and his word, I invite you to stand for the reading of the word. Luke 20. 
one day as Jesus uh, was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. And that's as far as we got last week. Um, if you're just coming in, this is, this is after Palm Sunday. Jesus is only days away from his death. He's in the temple teaching and preaching the gospel. The chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it was that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John, so this is John the Baptist, was the baptism of John from heaven? Or from man. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the, par- uh, tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit from the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they also, this one they also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, "What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him." But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, "This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours." And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Amen. You may be seated. We focused last Sunday only on Jesus and his gospel preaching. We let the focus fall on that side of the the tension. Today, we're going to focus on the other side, the religious leaders. We see first their question. This is verse 2. Their question is a question about authority. Tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. Now, why would they ask about this? Well, two weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus rode into the city on a donkey as a king would arrive. That's a claim to authority. 
And after he did that, the first, his first priority was to go into the temple and clear out things that he didn't think belonged there. That's a claim to authority, taking the authority on himself to clear out the temple and decide what gets to be there and what doesn't get to be there. Following that, he takes up a position in the temple. You know, formerly he had taught outside the temple on the Mount of Olives. That was his common place of teaching. Now he's taken up a place in the temple. That's where the religious authorities teach. That's where the leaders teach. Now he's encroaching on their territory. So he's, in all these ways, making his claim to be the authority over the religious life of Israel, the one who speaks authoritatively for how to relate to God. Now, the problem is the chief priests and the scribes, they have held that position. That's their position. They're the teachers. They they have charge of the temple. They get to decide what gets to be there. So there's a conflict here. Who gets to be the religious authority? Who can speak for God? Who gets to interpret the scriptures? Who, most of all, who has God's stamp of approval to represent him before the people? That's the conflict. So they ask him the question, where does your authority come from? Who gave it to you? Now, think about the question. What's the right answer to the question? What's the true answer? Well, the true answer is that God the Father gave Jesus this authority. Jesus' authority comes from God the Father. That's the true answer. God. That's also the only answer that will be good enough for the religious leaders. I mean, if someone presumes to come into the city and do all these things, their authority better come from God. I mean, you can't name any lesser authority and have them accept that answer. It has to be God in order for the answer to be acceptable. God is the only answer that's sufficient. Now, the problem is God is also the answer that they won't accept. For Jesus to say that God has given him the authority to do these things will not be acceptable to them because they live under the conviction that God has already given the authority to them. And if he's given it to them, he cannot have given it to Jesus. It already belongs to them. It can't belong to him. It's theirs. So you see the problem. The true answer is God. God is the only acceptable answer. God is also the unacceptable answer. So Jesus is in what we might call a a dilemma. There's no true answer that he can give that will also be acceptable to them. But he's not daunted. Of course, he's not surprised. He's not fazed by any of this. Instead of offering an answer, he puts them into a dilemma. He forces them to wrestle with the fact that they are not willing to humbly acknowledge truth. See, he's not able to give them the true answer because they won't accept it. Now he's going to force them to wrestle with their inability to acknowledge truth. Here's how he does it. Look at 
how he puts, how he turns the tables on them and puts them into a dilemma. He brings up the situation regarding John, John the Baptist, John who was out in the wilderness baptizing. He asked them the question, verse 4, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? In other words, did, did God sanction this baptism that John was offering? Did God give his stamp of approval to what was going on with John? Or was, was John's baptism just something that he wanted to do, that he thought was a good idea, and he took his own initiative, and it was all of his own flesh? Was the baptism of John from heaven? Did God give his approval? Was it from God, with God's authority? Or is it just something John thought was a good idea? Now, let's think about this question that he's setting before them. What is he doing? Here's the the substance of the question. This is the underlying issue. He's really asking them this. Are you capable of admitting when someone else's authority has come from God? That's the, that's the question behind the question. Are, are you guys capable, are you even capable of admitting publicly when someone else's authority has come from God? Let's look at John, he says. Let's evaluate his ministry. Did it come from God or from man? Evaluate it and tell me. Well, what are their options? Well, they could say it was of man, that God had nothing to do with it. It was just John's idea. They decide that's a dangerous thing to say because they're liable to get stoned by the people. People hold John in high esteem that he was a prophet of God. So they're worried that if they say that John's baptism was actually his own idea, God didn't give his approval to it. They don't want to say that because they're worried that they're going to die. They don't want to die. They don't want to be stoned. So they're definitely not going to say that John's baptism was just John's idea or from man. Well, okay, so what's the other option? They could say that it was from heaven, that John spoke and acted on behalf of God. God gave John the authority to preach and baptize. That seems like the better option. They avoid death by giving that answer. That's good. There's just one problem with that option. They'd have to admit that they were wrong. If we say from heaven, then he'll say, why did you not believe him? See, now they're wrong. They've been wrong. They'd have to admit that they were wrong. We see them discussing that option in verse 5. If they give that answer, they will be in a humiliated position. Before all the people, they will show themselves to have been wrong in religious leadership. And they will take a back seat to Jesus in terms of authority because Jesus supported John. If they now admit that John's baptism was from heaven, that will be an admission that they were wrong. So even if it's true that John's baptism was from heaven, they can't admit it. They won't admit it. Because they will be humbled and they will lose authority to Jesus. And that's what Jesus is testing. Are they even capable of descending 
in that way. Is this group of powerful leaders capable of humbly receiving truth and admitting when someone else's authority has come from God? I mean, the choice is between death and just admitting that they were wrong. Just choose that. I mean, at least you get to live, and they decide that neither path, neither answer is acceptable to give. One means death, the other means humility, and they can't tolerate either of those things. So we see their decision in verses 7 and 8. Um, they take the only way out, which is just to claim ignorance. We, we don't know. And since they themselves have, they've now demonstrated in real time that they are incapable of humbly receiving truth. Incapable of stepping back and admitting when someone else's authority has really come from God, Jesus does not privilege them with the truth. With the true answer to the question that they asked. They've already demonstrated they're not capable of receiving it. Their hearts are too calcified. They're too wrapped up in their own position of power. Their spirit is is too far gone and too different from the humble, gracious spirit of God. Remember, these are the same these are the same people that were grumbling because sinners were coming near to Jesus and receiving forgiveness. They didn't like that. These are the same guys that when someone was healed, like of a deformity or a disease that they'd had for a long time, instead of rejoicing and being happy that they were healed, they grumbled because it happened on a day of a week that they didn't like. They've been manifesting this decayed condition like all the way through the gospel. This is just the high point. So Jesus tells this parable um, about the vineyard to really highlight and just encapsulate their condition. How ugly it is, how diseased it is, and what the result of it all is going to be. In the parable, they're the tenants. These religious leaders, are the, they're the tenants. God is the owner of the vineyard. The nation of Israel is the vineyard. The Old Testament background for this is Isaiah 5. Isaiah chapter 5, if you want to dig into it more. It it does have an Old Testament background. They would have been familiar with the, the picture of the vineyard and their nation as being a vineyard that God planted. They're the tenants. God is the owner. The nation is the vineyard. The, the religious leaders were, were there to, to steward leadership over the vineyard. But notice what happens over time. Over time, the tenants in the parable begin to act like the vineyard belongs to them. They mistreat and they abuse the servants that the true owner sends as if they own the vineyard. Those servants that are talked about, you know, he sent one servant and then another and another. Those are the prophets that God sent to the nation again and again and again to see if they would bear the fruit of repentance. Many of whom were persecuted and killed by the nation. So finally, finally, the owner of the vineyard sends his beloved son. We know who that is, don't we? Finally, God, the owner of the vineyard, sends his beloved son, Jesus, 
And instead of respecting the owner and deferring to his son, they decide to protect their power in the vineyard by killing the son. See, they think if they kill the son, they can maintain control in perpetuity. They say, then the inheritance will be ours. Let's kill the son, then the inheritance will truly be ours. That's their plan. Protect our power by killing the son. So don't you see how this is picturing what's actually happening in real time in the temple as they're coming and as they're talking? With this parable, Jesus is saying, this is who you are, this is what you're doing. And he says this will be the result. What will the owner do? Verse 16, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So Jesus, he spells out their condition clearly. They have wrongfully assumed the rights of ownership over religious life, over people. Yes, they were tenants. God did give them leadership. Leadership over religious life and over people, but they've gone beyond leadership and taken to themselves ownership. An ownership that excludes and violently resists the true owner. And their mistaken identity and thinking that they own the vineyard is so badly mistaken that they kill the beloved son and mistakenly think that that means protection for them. That means like securing their place if we kill the son, when actually it means the opposite. That the owner will come and hand it over to others and they themselves will be destroyed. Total loss of power. The gifting of leadership to others, probably Gentiles in this case, when he says, um, give the vineyard to others. An incomprehensible thought to them. We see their response in in verse 19. This is hard to hear. It's hard for them to hear. They know that it's been told about them. You know, ironically, their plan, after hearing this, after hearing Jesus spell out, this is your condition, you're going to kill the son to protect your power, the owner's going to come and destroy you. Ironically, they go and decide, you know, we need to kill this guy. They, do, they, they go and make plans to do the very thing he said they were going to do. That will lead to their destruction. They seek to lay hands on him. They make plans to kill him. The very thing that's indicated by the parable. Okay, let's stop and have a summary. And then let's move into application. What have we seen here in this climactic interaction between Jesus and in the religious leaders of Israel. Well, there was a showdown over authority. Okay, we've got that. We've talked about that a lot. Dialogue was tried. But the humans, the humans proved themselves incapable of humbly receiving truth. That's a problem, isn't it? They tried dialogue, but we, the human element, was not capable of receiving truth because the hearts were too hard. So the humans resort to violence, the only card that's left to play. That violence will be returned upon them in 70 AD when Rome comes and destroys everything, burns everything to the ground. All their power is gone. But out of those ashes, 
Out of those ashes that Rome just burns everything down, out of those ashes will arise a new building with Jews and Gentiles of which Jesus is the cornerstone. The beloved son who was rejected is the cornerstone of the new building, the church, that will rise up out of those ashes. And there will be a new source of power, the Holy Spirit, for the building up of this building. It will grow in size and in beauty. It will include Jews and Gentiles. And all this will happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. All of this was known by God, foretold by God. Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, we spent a lot of time in explanation and just trying to understand what's going on. Because that's important. We do want to know the dynamics that got Jesus killed. We want to know what the conflict was, why it couldn't be resolved, all those things. But what we want to do now, just for a few minutes, is ask ourselves, could what we see happening there, like what we read about here, long time ago, could that ever happen here? Like, are there any universals here that speak to power dynamics and the way that we handle power in the church? in in the the Christian organization that you are part of, in the Bible study that you lead, the the parachurch group that you work with. Are there any warnings that are true in every age about religion and power and leadership? Well, as you know, absolutely these same dynamics are still in play. Very same things are the source of some of the greatest hurt and greatest ugliness in the church, in parachurch organizations, um, almost monthly, sometimes weekly. We hear about another instance where a church or a parachurch organization is in a situation where the, the leadership is faced with a choice between protecting their own name and image or pastor, or power. We can protect our place, our reputation, our name, or we can admit that a grievous wrong has been done here and take ownership of it and repent of it. These leadership groups are facing the question, do we try to protect our own power here or do we do the right and humble thing? the thing that will bring humiliation to our organization. The thing that's going to require admitting publicly we were wrong. See, it's the same dilemma that the religious leaders faced in Luke 20. What's going to happen when the choice is between protecting our power and our influence, which we love and can't imagine life without, and humbly admitting that we were wrong and accepting the consequences? And I I don't know if this is shocking. Part of me says, yes, this is shocking. Part of me says, no, this isn't shocking at all. Still, even still, 2,000 years later, way more often than not, 
the vast majority of the time, the leadership groups opt to take the protective route and protect their own organization, their own pastor, their own power, their own name, instead of admitting that they were wrong. It still happens all the time, the majority of the time. There's too much money at stake. There's too much influence at stake. And there's this ever-present element of fear. What's going to happen to our organization and our authority if we admit we did something wrong? What happens if we don't recover from this? You know, when a leadership group is going through that in your organization or a church that you're part of or whatever, and it's, maybe it becomes the point of a congregational meeting, or maybe you're just part of a leadership meeting where you're wrestling with this issue, how often does anyone ever speak up at one of those meetings when these things are discussed and say, you know, I realize that there's a lot at stake here for our church organization, but you, you know what, there's something else at stake. Let's, let's not let it get lost here that the, the name and reputation of Jesus is at stake here. We bear his name. And if we bear his name, we dare not take the path of protecting our own power to avoid a path of humiliation. That's exactly the opposite of what it means to be a Christian. Protecting your own power to avoid the path of humiliation, Jesus did the opposite. He refused to protect his own power. He laid down his life and walked the path of humiliation. We can't betray the nature of our calling. So how do, we, how do we avoid this diseased use of power that's on display in Luke 20? How do we just make sure that we're not these guys, all right? I've got three things for you. This, this is not comprehensive, but I think this is a good start. Things that every Christian must recognize, okay? First of all, my power is borrowed from God, Any power that I have, any power that you have in your organization, that's a borrowed power. We're tenants, not owners. We don't own this church. This church belongs to God. This is the church of Jesus Christ. We're not in charge. Our power is on loan from God. My power is borrowed. We're tenants. A tenant mindset, not an owner mindset. Secondly, my power is um, removable by God. My power is borrowed from God. My power is removable by God. We, we would all like to think that we're indispensable to our organization. We'd all like to think that life couldn't possibly go on without my gifts and my le- leadership and all these things and everything that I invested and all of my contributions No, my power is removable by God. At any time, we are all temporary. We are all placeholders for the next person that's coming. God can take any of us out at any moment, whenever he wants. My power is borrowed from God. My power is removable by God. Third, my power is for serving people sacrificially like In the kingdom of God, power is not something to be protected. It's something to be poured out. Something to be used on behalf of those who don't have power. Used on behalf of the needy, the poor, the oppressed. Those with physical needs, those with spiritual needs. That's what power is for in the kingdom of God. 
Not for protecting, but for pouring out. Every Christian has to recognize these things. My power is borrowed. My power is removable. My power is for serving people sacrificially. Think about this. What, what if the religious leaders of Israel had um, held these beliefs about their power? The ones that you see up there on the screen. How would that have changed what happened if they had believed these things? What if we commit to owning these convictions about the use of power individually and corporately? Can you let these convictions form your soul? Or is it already too late? What if we commit to holding these beliefs about our power? What if we don't? What if we walk the path of pride and self-protection and we end up sacrificing Jesus in the process? By the way, when you get into a situation like this where you're wrestling with this question about, okay, I've got this choice between protecting my power or a humble admission of truth, a humble admission of wrong, you'll always feel justified in protecting your power. There will always be a reason why you think it's legitimate to protect your own power. Uh, my wife Molly and I are watching a situation from afar at a, a church we're familiar with right now where this is going on, where we're watching someone in a, bo- a church board wrestle with power and wrestle out in real time, am I going to be self-protective or am I going to own up to what I did wrong? And there's strong, strong justification on the side of the pastor where he could look at the situation and say, you know, I, I feel really justified in trying to do this. Understand this. These guys in Luke 20 felt justified in protecting their power. You will always feel justified in protecting the power that you have. So the question, we we have to learn to ask ourselves a different question. The question can't be, do I feel justified in being self-protective here? We have to learn to ask a different question. The question we have to ask is, What is my desire to protect my power costing Jesus? Is he losing so that I can win? What's it costing him in the church, in the community, internationally? Just recognize that about yourself. I need to recognize that about myself. We will always feel justified in protecting our own power. We have to turn our eyes to Jesus and say, is he losing? Is he being sacrificed like he was in Luke 20 so that I can maintain a measure of power? One universal is that power dynamics will always be with us. We want to learn to handle power more like Jesus, less like the religious leaders. That's what the last 10 minutes has been about. Here's the last point. Every Christian needs the gospel. Please read that last point really carefully. Every Christian needs the gospel. We started this passage last Sunday talking about the gospel, Jesus preaching the gospel. We're going to end talking about the gospel. Every Christian needs the gospel. 
as you live longer in Christ, as you mature in Christ, and maybe even take on some kind of leadership role, the temptation is to think, as you become more mature in Christ, as you take on leadership roles, the temptation is to think that the gospel that I have is for other people. You know, those people that need it out there. Gospel is something I give out to other people. People who don't yet believe it. The gospel is something that I try to package and export. It's something that I'm an expert in, that I give away to others. And that's exactly the wrong mindset to have. We should all have the mindset that first and foremost, the gospel is something that I need. Not something that I give out, something that I have, that I need. The gospel is something for me, something that nourishes my soul first and draws me to worship first. Because if our identity is not formed in that way, in a gospel-centered way, as in I am a person who desperately needs the gospel, if that's not our identity as, ma- as mature Christians, our identity way too easily becomes, I'm an expert in the gospel and how to give it to other people that need it. My identity becomes wrapped up in, I'm a Christian worker, I'm a Christian expert, I'm a Christian decision maker, I'm a high level leader, I'm a Christian life director. And when that identity gets challenged, when we set ourselves up there and that gets challenged, bad things happen. Things that sacrifice the name of Jesus when that identity gets attacked and we haven't rooted ourselves down here in being someone who desperately needs the gospel. That we're saved not because of our position, not because of what we can do for Jesus, not because of our law keeping, but because of our trust in Jesus' perfect life. It's really easy to overlook in this passage that the people that need the gospel the most when Jesus is preaching in the temple are the religious leaders. The, the professional religionists. They need to hear that they're right with God through faith. Not through the performance of their duties. So this is a universal. If, if you're among the most mature Christians in this room, if you're among the longest tenured, the gospel is first and foremost for you so that you don't calcify. So that you don't begin to think it's all about you and I don't begin to think it's all about me. Because the gospel tells us that we're needy and saved by grace, not by what we do for God. As Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 4, we have this ministry by the mercy of God. So since we have this ministry by mercy, Let's hold it loosely, let's hold it honorably, and let's be on the lookout for the sun. Let's be on the lookout for the approaching sun. As tenants in this vineyard that we're working, let's watch for the sun to come and bring the corrections and the commands that he will bring to us. And be on the lookout to be receptive of the sun in his corrections, okay? Now, this is meant to be a a culture-shaping message for this church, that this is how we will handle power together. And what that means is that I need accountability from you. The elders of this church need accountability from you. That if you see us handling power in a way that does not adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you be willing to be the one to stand up at that meeting or give that phone call and say, you know, there's something else at stake here besides you protecting your power. 
The name of Jesus is at stake. We have to do that for each other. We need everyone concerned that Jesus, Jesus never be sacrificed here because this is a temporary institution. Perry Hill Church will not exist someday. He is the eternal one. He is king. Christ is the beloved son. Lord, Father, we want to own these things today, and we do in theory, but it's so hard to put into practice. We, we know our own hearts. We know the desire to be self-protective. You know, we look at these guys in Luke 20 and say, how could they be that way? But we know that it's human nature. We know that we have the same weakness. We can see around us that other institutions have struggled to put these things into effect. And we know that only by mercy will we handle power in a way that glorifies you. So today, our prayer is that the Holy Spirit would really let these things sink in and have a softening effect on our hearts. And please start with me. We love you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.